Chapter 20 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Crips Draws the Cork. Any kind, good natured person, loving bright simplicity, would have thought it a little treat to look round the carrier's dwelling room upon that Saturday evening when he expected Mr. Overshoot. Not that Cripps himself was over-tidy or too particular. He was so kindly familiar now with hay and straw and bits of string and chaff and chips and promiscuous parcels that on the whole he preferred a litter to any exertions of broom or brush. But Esther, who ruled the house at home, was the essence of quick neatness and scorned all comfort unless it looked, as well as was, right comfortable and now expecting so grand a guest she had tucked up her sleeves and stirred her pretty arms to no small purpose the room was still a kitchen and she had made no attempt to disguise that much but what can look better than a kitchen clean and bright and well supplied with cheery tools of appetite it was a good-sized room and very picturesque with snugness little corners in and out gave play for light and shadow the fireplace retired far enough to well express itself, and a dresser had brass-handled drawers that seemed quietly nursing tablecloths. Well above these, upon lofty hooks, the chronicles of the present generation might be read on cups. Zachary headed the line, of course, and then, as Genesis is ignored by grander generations, Exodus and Leviticus, the fount of much fine movement, and numbers and a great many more showed that the carrier's father and mother had gladly baptized every one. In front of the fire sat the carrier, with nearly all of his best clothes on, and gazing at a warming pan. He had been forbidden to eat his supper, for fear of making a smell of it, and he had a great mind to go to bed and have some hot coals under him. For nearly five miles of uphill work and laying his shoulder against the spokes, he had been promising himself a rare good supper and a pipe to follow. And now where were they? In the far background. He had no idea of rebellion. Still that saucepan on the simmer made the most provoking movements. Therefore he put up his feet upon a stump of oak, which had for generations cooled down pots, and he turned with a shake of his head toward the fire and sniffed the sniff of Tantalus and muttered, Ah, well... The Lord knoweth best, and thought to himself that if ever again he invited the quality to his house, he would wait till he had his own quantity first. Esther was quite in a flutter, although she was ready to deny it stoutly, and to blush a bright red in doing so. To her, of course, Justice Overshoot was simply a great man who must have the chair of state and the talk of restraint, and a clean, dry hearth and the curtsy and the best white apron of deference. To her it could make not one jot of difference that Mr. Overshoot happened to be the most intimate friend of some other gentleman who never came near her except in dreams. Tush! She had the very greatest mind, when the house was clean and tidy, to go and spend the evening with her dear friend Mealy at the anvil. But Zachary would not hear of this, and how could she go against Zachary? So she brought the grand chair, the armchair of yew-tree, the tree that used to shade the graves of unrecorded cripses, a chair of deepest red complexion, countenanced with a cushion. The cushion was but a little pad in a dark capacious hollow, 
suggesting to an innocent mind that a lean man had left his hat there, and a fat man had sat down on it. But the mind of every Crips yet known was strictly reverential, and this was the Kurul chair, and even the Olympian throne of Cripsis. Russell Overshoot knocked at the door, in his usual quick and impetuous way. In the main he was a gentleman, and he would have knocked at the nobleman's door exactly as he did the carrier's. But all radical theories, fine as they are, detract from gentle practice, and a too large-minded man, while young, takes a flying leap over small niceties. He does not remember that poor men need more deference than rich men, because they are not used to it. To put it more plainly, Overshoot knocked hard and meant no harm by it. "'Come in, sir, and kindly welcome,' Cripps began as he showed him in. Please to take this chair, your worship. Never mind your boots. Lord bless us, the mud of three counties cometh here. Then it goes away again very quickly. Miss Cripps, how are you? May I shake hands? Esther, who had been shrinking into the shade of the clock in the dresser, came forward with a brave, bright blush, and offered her hand, as a lady might. Russell Overshoot took it kindly and bowed to her curtsy and smiled at her. In an honest, manly way, he admired pretty Esther. Master Cripps, you are too bad. Your sister is in the conspiracy, too. I do believe that your mind is set to make me as tipsy as a king tonight. They little things, said the carrier, pointing to the old oak table where a bottle of grand old whiskey shone with the reflected gleam of lemons, and glasses danced in the firelight. They little things, sir was never set for so good a gentleman afore, nor a one to do such honor to un. But they might be worse, sir, they might be worse, to spake their simple do of un. And how is poor squire tonight, your worship? Well, he is about as usual. Nothing seems to move him much. He sits in his old chair and listens for a step that never comes, but his patience is wonderful. It ought to be a lesson to us, and I hope that it has been one to me. He trusts in the Lord, Cripps, as strongly as ever. I fear I should have given up that long ago if I were laid on my back as he is. Young folk, answered Cripps as he drew the cork, meaning no disrespect to you, sir. When they encounters trouble is like a young horse a-coming to the foot of a hill for the first time with a heavy load. He feeleth the collar beginning to press, and he tosseth his head, and that maketh him worse. He beginneth to get into fret and fume, and he shaketh his legs with anger, and he turneth his head and foameth a bit, and champeth to ask the meaning of it, and then you can judge what the stuff of him is. If he be bad stuff, he throweth him back, and tilteth his loins, and spraddleth. But if he hath good stuff... He throweth out his chest, and putteth the fire into his eyes, and closeth his nostrils, and gathereth his legs, and straineth his muscles like a bowstring. But he be as good as a wool, he longeth to see over the top of that hill, afore he be halfway up it. Well, Cripps, I have done that, I confess. I have longed to see over the top of the hill, and heaven only knows where that top is. But as sure as we sit here and drink this glass of punch to your sister's health and to yours, good carrier, so surely shall our dear old friend receive the reward of his faith and courage, whether in this world or the next. 
Thank you kindly, sir. Eddie, is that the best sort of curtsy they teaches now? Now, don't blush, child, but make a better. But as to what your worship was a-saying of, I virtually hopes it may come to pass in this world we be living in. Otherwise, maybe, us never may know on it, the kingdom of heaven being such a size. Crips, I believe it will be in this world, and I hope that I am on the straight road now towards making out some part of it. You have told your sister all I told you at Brazenose this morning according to my directions. Very well, then. I may begin again at the point where I left off with you. Where did I break it? I almost forget. With the man's big thumb and the mouth of the shield. While you was a-looking at him, sir, and the wind and the rain blowing furious. Ah, oh, yes, I remember, and so they were. I thought that the crest of the hedge would fall over and bury the whole of us out of the way. And then the poor boy had kicked out his convulsions and fallen into a senseless sleep. The rough man turned on me savagely as if I could have prevented it. A pretty doctor you be, he exclaimed. But I took the upper hand on him. Stand back there, I said, and I lifted the child, expecting him to strike me all the while, and placed the poor little fellow on my horse and managed to get up into my saddle before the wind blew him off again. Now lead the way to your home, I said, and muttering something he set off. He strode along at such a pace that having to manage both child and horse, it was all I could do to keep up with him. But I kept him in sight till he came to a common, and there he struck sharply away to the right. By the light of the wind and the rain, and a star that twinkled where the storm was lifting, I followed him, perhaps for half a mile, through a narrow track, in and out of firs and bramble. At last he turned suddenly round a corner, and a shadow fell behind him, his own shadow thrown by a gusty gleam of fire. Cantaloupe, that is my horse, Miss Esther, has not learned to stand fire yet, and he shied at the light, and set off through the firs as if with the hounds in full cry before him. We were very lucky not to break our necks going headlong in the dark among rabbit holes. I thought that I must have dropped the child as the best thing to be done for him, but the shaking revived him and he clung to me. I got my horse under command at last, but we must have gone half a mile anywhere and to find the way back seemed a hopeless task. But the quick-witted people, who knew what had happened and what was likely to come of it, saved me miles of roundabout by a very simple expedient. They hoisted from time to time a torch of dry furs blazing upon a pole, and though the light flared and went out in the wind, by the quick repetition they guided me. In the cold and the wet it rejoiced my heart to think of a good fire somewhere. Eddie, stir the fire up, the hospitable Cripps interrupted. His worship hath shivers to think of it. When a man, or, beg pardon, a gentleman, feeleth the small of his back o'creeping, he needeth good fire to come up his legs, and a hot summit to go down him. Eddie, be quick with the water now. Cripps, Cripps, carrier Cripps, do you want to have me spilled on the road tonight? I am trying to tell things in proper order, but how can I do it if you go on so? However, as I was beginning to say, Cantaloupe and the child and I— fetched back to the place at last, where the flash of light had started us, 
and we saw not a flash, but a glow this time, a steadfast body of cheerful fire, with pots and cauldrons over it. So well had the spot been chosen in the lee of ground and growth, that the ash of the fire lay round the embers, as still as the beard of an oyster, while thicket and tree but a few yards off were threshing in the wind and wailing, behind this fire and under a rickcloth sloping from a sandstone crest, women and children and one or two men sat as happy and snug as could be, dry and warm and ready for supper, and pleased with the wind and the rain outside, which improved their comfort and appetite, and now and then the children seemed to be pulling at an important woman, to hurry her, perhaps, in her cookery. But while I was watching them, keeping my horse on the verge of light and shadow, a woman, quite different from the rest, came out of the darkness after me. Heedless of weather and reckless of self, she had been seeking for me, or rather for my little burden. Her hair was steeped with a drenching rain, for she wore no hat or bonnet, and her dark clothes hung on the lines of her figure, as women hate to let them do. Her eyes and face I could not see because the way the light fell, but I seemed to know her none the less. While I gazed in doubt, my little fellow slipped like an eel from my clasp and the saddle, and almost before I could tell where he was, there he was in the arms of his mother. Wonders of love now began to go on, and it struck me that I was one too many in a scene of that sort, and I turned my good horse to be off and away. But the woman called out, and a man laid hold of my bridle, and took his hat off when, with the usual impulse of a stopped Briton, I was going to strike at him. I saw that it was my good friend of the ditch, and I came to parley with him. What with his scarcity of manners and of polished language, and worst of all his want of palate, I found it hard with so much wind blowing out here all around us to understand his meaning. This was rude of me to the last degree, for the query-voiced man was doing no less than inviting me with all his heart to an uncommonly good dinner. End of chapter 20